Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Caroline Strassen. Caroline Strassen is a multi-award-winning EMDR and rapid transformational therapist specializing in self-healing the trauma after narcissistic abuse. She is the author of best-selling book, Divorce Became My Superpower, and she is a leading international authority and expert in narcissistic abuse and trauma. After going through her own devastating divorce from a narcissist where she had over $85,000 in debt and her family home repossessed, she was diagnosed with CPTSD and suffered with depression, anxiety, and self-harm. Her personal journey to not just bounce back, but bounce forward quickly turned into a personal mission to want to help others through the trauma of narcissistic abuse. Caroline is passionate about raising awareness about psychological abuse and is helping thousands of people thrive after abuse. She holds individual therapy sessions with clients all over the world with her unique methods to rapidly heal others after narcissistic abuse, healing the inner wounds associated with this abuse and trauma. This is an amazing, amazing story and just an amazing, lovely woman. If you get nothing else out of it, her accent is beautiful, but I just loved doing this interview. So hold on to your seats. Episode 54. Let's do this. Caroline, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for asking me. I just wanted to spend an hour listening to your voice, your accent. (laughs) (laughs) It's so beautiful. It's really interesting because my sister lives in Arizona. She lives in Phoenix and uh, she's got still the British accent. But every now and again, it kind of comes out this American twang as well. So, and then my my nephew, of course, who is totally American, it's whenever I say, hey, Annie Caroline. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, it, and it's like then my, then my sister is so British. Yeah, still. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's that it's it's coming down the generations. It's so funny. Correct. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I always joke like you if you're British, like there's certain accents where you can say anything and it sounds sophisticated. And then there's other accents, which will remain nameless, where you can say anything and it sounds not sophisticated. So correct. <laughs> so I just, I yeah, love it. Hard. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. You wrote a book called Divorce is My Superpower. And I think that's amazing. Also, I've been saying that as a result of COVID, that the best employment, the most steady employment is going to be the divorce attorneys right now because everybody's locked in the house with their spouse. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really tough time for a lot of people. I deal a lot with abusive relationships, hence my, hence my book. So, you know, I've got a lot of people in, in my group on Facebook who are actually in lockdown with their partner still. They, they aren't actually even divorced yet. So they're so, planning yeah. on divorcing and they're locked. Oh, yes. no. oh we're, no. We're doing some e- exit strategies as we speak. Oh no. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. It, I, I can't even, I mean, there's so many scenarios where it's just, it's horrifying. So tell me a little bit about 
what your background, where did you grow up? What was your family like? Okay. So I'm originally from a place called Manchester here in the UK. That's where I was born. And we traveled around a lot, actually, as a family growing up. We actually lived in a place called Papua New Guinea for two years when I was younger. Yeah. We toured all along the sort of East coast of Australia. So we were big, you know, we loved traveling. um, And my dad worked for a a big chemical company. So we, we moved around. I went to lots and lots of different schools actually growing up. Um, which was great because it allowed me to be good at speaking to people. But of course, when you get lots of friends and then you have to move, you don't particularly want to move. So I'd always had an interest in um, the medical sector, you know, fascinated with programs on TV, loved watching all of that. And I remember sort of in my teens when I was deciding what I was going to do at university, I actually would have liked to have been a doctor when I look back. But my mum was very good where she said, yes, but a doctor, if you have children and then you go back into it, it's going to be hard. So I ended up actually becoming a podiatrist. That, that's what I um, became. That, that was originally my background as a podiatrist. And, uh, and up until really um, my, when my marriage ended 11 years ago, I did podiatry on the side, but I also worked for an airline as well. I, I love traveling. So being a podiatrist, I was able to still have my own business being a podiatrist because I, I was just um, in private practice. I, had, I ran my own clinic, but also then I was able to travel the world for free. So it was kind of the best of both worlds. I worked in the health, in the health service here in the UK for a while and then um, then worked for um, British Airways and for Virgin, actually. Oh, awesome. So, um, yeah, which was great fun. But again, passion has always been the human body, the brain, right. all of that. Right. And then um, I got married. I met my husband when I was flying for British Airways and we got married. And, and I suppose... That archetypal marriage at the start, you know, we got a house and then we had our son. And then really for me, things started going downhill, kind of pinpointing for myself when I started we were thinking about having our second child and I ended up having four consecutive miscarriages at that particular time. So it was a really tough time. A lot of my friends were having their second child and there was a few red flags that were starting to come to the fore, but pushing them to the back of my mind because I thought, no, you know, we're going to have a sibling for my son. And I fell pregnant for the fifth time and I went on to have my daughter, Maddie. But six months into my pregnancy with my daughter, um, I found out my husband was having an affair. So you can imagine at that time, it was like, what do I do? I can't even go and get drunk because yeah. I'm pregnant. <laughs> you know, I can't even do oh that. God, they never even <laughs> thought of that. Yeah. No, yeah. I couldn't even do anything. So, and again, I'd always been the type of person, actually, that had said, you know, if anyone ever cheated on me, that would be it. They would be gone. That was it. But actually, when you're pregnant, you have a home together, you have a life together. It's, you know, what, what do you do? So, of course... He was very upset and crying and, and everything. So we decided to, to give it a go. But really from that point onwards, I think something probably died inside of me. And I also started to become aware that there were little subtle things that were happening and I was really losing myself who I was. I threw myself into being a mum. You know, that was always my priority. And a year after I had my daughter, uh, my mum passed away very, very suddenly so I'd had a bit of trauma. I'd had my miscarriages oh, yeah. and then obviously the affair. And then my mum passed away really suddenly. And then a year after that, my husband walked out on me and my two children as well. So in the space really of about two years, there was a lot of trauma, a lot of trauma. I then found out we were in over £70,000 worth of debt, which is over $100,000 worth of debt. And some of, obviously about a third of that was in my sole name. So you can imagine I was a single mother, two children totally reliant on me because he'd moved hours away 
away. And um, I was just working part time as a podiatrist at, at the time. And that culminated about a year after that, I actually had my family home repossessed um, as well. So I'd literally lost everything. I'd literally, I was at rock bottom. Um, I'd been diagnosed with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, which at probably it's complex PTSD because it was a number of events as well. I had depression, anxiety, self-harm. I used to literally start my mornings on the bathroom floor having a panic attack or stopping myself having one. I'd get my toothpaste so I used to bite my nails. I used to get the toothpaste and literally on the top of my thighs I'd be kind of gouging out the top of my thighs. I, I almost wish I had a volume button on my head that I could turn everything going down. And, um, you know, it was really only my two children. And genuinely, if I didn't have my two children, I wouldn't be sat here right now. I was at a really, really low place. It was only them that I thought I've, I've got to stay. And um, yeah, it was a really, really low point in my life. Um, I'd lost my mum, who was my rock, best friend, um, lost her. And then, you know, my husband had walked out. But I'd realised when I was going through sort of therapy afterwards, what type of relationship I had I'd always been a confident ambitious woman and I was a shell of who I was I was literally a shell of who I was I didn't realize I didn't even realize Ashley as an intelligent woman that I'd been in that I'd been in a psychologically narcissistically abusive relationship I just didn't know it was very subtle the gaslighting at Everything that had happened in the relationship, I just didn't realize. So it was this realization then of, wow. And I even remember my therapist saying this to me and I was like, no, 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 you know, he, he just cheated. But all the things I started to say about our relationship and what he used to say to me and everything else, it was it was just like an eye opener. I remember she, she said to me, go and Google narcissist. And I went and Googled it and I was like, oh, my goodness, this, this is him. This, this is him. And it really scared me in a way because I was reading, get away from them, get away from them. And then at the bottom of this article, I read it said, but it's really hard if you have children with them. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, you know, what next? So yeah, it was a really, really low point in my life. So, oh my gosh, there's so much to unpack here. And okay. So what, what did your husband do for a living? So he was cabin crew for British Airways. So when I was cabin crew, we met and everything else. And even now, when I look back, there were red flags. I just didn't see them. I didn't see them because he was saying all the right things to me that because of my own deep wounds myself, it was it was like, oh, amazing. You know, he got a tattoo with my name on a month after we met. Now, to me at the time, of course, I was like, wow, he must really like me. That's mm -hmm. amazing. You know, right. but obviously, obviously where I am now, it's like, whoa, a month. Wow. You know, that's a huge red flag. But at the time, because I got deep inner wounds of not feeling worthy myself, having somebody say all the things that I really wanted someone to say to me, it was just, I was like a magnet to someone like that. I, I was a real codependent, seeking external approval, external love. And of course, he ticked all of the boxes. I was like a magnet to him. So when you were moving around as a child a lot, you know, you, you love to travel, but also that creates difficulty with attachments, right? Because in the back of your mind, you know that you're going to another place. You know that these friends, no matter how close you get to them, truly there's going to be a day where you're not going to be there anymore. How did that play into, like you talked about your deep wounds of, of codependency and like what was the dynamic that you grew up with that created deep wounds that caused you to feel like this was that this was everything you'd needed. 
primarily my father. You know, as much as I love my dad, my dad had a very cold upbringing. And, you know, as much as I love him, he's here today. I, I adore him. But his parental capabilities weren't one of showing me love or praise. So I, I grew up never hearing, I love you from my dad or I'm proud of you. I never got that. And and even when I was doing all my own deep healing, I, I was very sporty and very academic. I was a real high achiever because, of course, I was seeking approval and wanting my dad to say, hey, Caroline, I'm really proud of you there. And, uh, and even when I go back to when I was sort of seven, eight years old, I'd do sort of little gymnastic routines in the lounge. And my dad would be the judge and he'd sit on the sofa and he'd kind of look at me and go hmm 9.99 recurring and I'd be like again and I'd do it again now of course as an adult I can look back and think you know my dad was just being silly and just trying to make a joke of it but to that but that child that sort of seven eight year old who thought she did it perfectly who thought she'd done really well the meaning I attached to that was my dad is not giving me a 10 because I'm not good enough. And that's then what gets wired in as the belief. So I'd bring home reports where it was straight A's and I'd kind of, you know, he'd glance at them and say, well done. But there was no real praise. There was there was not what I wanted. So, of course, that was getting wired in all of the time. So I try even harder to see if I could get that praise um, as well. And it, and it just never came. Even to this day, my dad has never said, you know, I'm proud of you and I've, I've achieved a lot, but he still has never said that to me. But I'm okay with that now. I wasn't back then. You know, it was what it was really a, a driving force for me that a lot of the things that I did, I always wanted them phone home and tell my mum and my dad to really get my dad's approval. So my dad was very much sort of quite a cold person, only again to his capability. My mum, on the other hand, was a real codependent empath. So from her upbringing, her, you know, my grandfather, I never met him, but my mum's father used to um, beat up my grandmother. So he left my mum and, and her sister and my gran when she was 14. So again, that dynamic then, my mum was very much not feeling good enough. So her sense of worth came from being an amazing mum, which was great for me because I look back with great memories of my mum. There was real codependency there then as well. So my mum was seeking her worth from being the great mum. And I was seeking my worth from my mum then as well, because my dad wasn't doing that. So there was, a, again, the dynamics of, of all of that, which, of course, led me to grow up to be a codependent, seeking worth from others in relationships and friendships. But it made me a magnet to toxic friendships, to toxic relationships as well, you know, because I was seeking that attachment with somebody that I didn't have from my father. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, um, it's really, uh, you know, it's really interesting. I related a lot, like, you know, I have the achiever gene and I remember, and my dad actually is a really warm person who would tell me that he's proud of me, but I do remember I would do, I would, get straight A's or what I would bring that home. And he would say, of course you got straight A's. Like it was like, because I had set that expectation and in his mind, that's a compliment. But as a kid that, you know, that it felt like, oh, it's not remarkable. Not enough. It's not yeah. enough. And, and it's conditional. Right. You know, I will say this if it's this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it becomes mm -hmm. conditional. And, and, and so what I hear and what I love to talk about because I, because of the importance is intergenerational trauma inter, you know, and maybe trauma is the wrong word in some cases, but really we're talking about how, when you don't do your own healing, you pass whatever it is on. And I think we all 
we all are going to do our own healing and probably still pass whatever it is on to some extent. But the, you know, the ability to stop and face those things about ourselves is so important when you bring kids into the picture, because as you know, they, they, you know, they pick up on that, you picked up on that. And then our children pick up on that. And, you know, you have children, so you know what this feels like where you, you know, that your dad in those scenarios, right. With his 9.999, you know what he meant. Cause you get it right. From the adult perspective, he's being funny, right. He's being dry sense of humor, funny, but you also know from the experience the tremendous lifelong memory as a child, what that does and all these. And so sometimes in my experience, when I do my own work, it, it can be almost paralyzing sometimes as a parent, because when I, you know, I have little kids and I think to myself, like, I'm going to make a joke or I'm teasing and I'm always wondering, and I have two, I have twin boys and they're very different. And I'm, I'm always thinking like one is going, I know that I know, I know some of this will be lost in translation and I don't know what it is, you know, and when you have that knowledge as a parent, you're like, okay, you know, I'm trying to get the right message across and we know how vital that is. It is. And I think that that comes with awareness and, and, you know, I'll hold my hands up when I split up initially with my ex-husband, the way I was parenting was very much cyclical of how my mother was parenting. I was getting my worth from my children. So I was almost, and we call it bulldozing parenting, you know, I was literally, you know, they couldn't feel pain, they couldn't feel anything, because if they cried, that meant I was a bad mother. We can't have that. So I was this overly protective mother, because then if they were smiley and happy all of the time, then that must mean that I'm a good mom. And I had to really dig deep and actually think, well, no, actually, my children need to feel pain, they need to feel hurt and angry, and I need to be by their side, allowing them to feel that so they know it is safe to feel like that and learn how to process all of that too. You know, I grew up with fairy tales, you know, happily ever afters all of the time. So for me, I I don't think I realized my parents were actually real human beings till I was about 23 because I thought they were these kind of, you know, perfect people and everything and not flawed human beings, which of course we all are. We all have our flaws. And I think, you know, when you mentioned about, you know, intergenerational trauma, It is trauma. I mean, trauma is just overwhelmed to our system. And that can be different for everybody based on our own past experiences um, as well. And I think you're right. And one of the things I'm really passionate about in my in my business is breaking that cycle. You know, and I, I look at my two children now to actually how it was when we split up sort of 10, 11 years ago. And they are both so independent now and they get it that how other people behave is just a projection onto them and not a reflection. And had I not done that deep work and, and had that awareness of that, we'd have had another cycle mm-hmm. of this. Mm-hmm. It's so important. And, and you know, I think it's really I think one of the things that people misunderstand sometimes is the idea of self-esteem. I just want to touch on this. Like when I started to do work on myself, which I had, you know, I was going to die or, or, or do this work. So I did the work. I thought that self-esteem was your accomplishments or like what made you valuable to other people. And like, I did not understand how that worked. And, and, and I also thought I had self-esteem if I could compliment myself. 
so I could say, oh, I'm, I'm funny. I, you know, I'm, you know, decently good looking. I, I'm smart. I know I'm smart. So I thought that was self-esteem. And what I learned was self-esteem is your deep inner feeling of worth on the planet, like why you believe that you deserve to live. And what I also learned from dating a narcissist and, and having that experience was when I put, and frankly, when I, with drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, when I put my self-worth, my reason for being on the planet in the hands of something or someone else, that that person or thing, but that person now has complete control over me because if they do not approve or love me, I no longer have a reason to live worth on the planet. And that's a terrifying thing and something that I did not understand why I felt like I couldn't breathe when they weren't around or when they left or when they were gaslighting me. And I, I was like, I know I'm not, I mean, I know I'm crazy, but I know I'm not that crazy. And that is that feeling of like, I can't breathe because you have dis- you have put yourself worth, like your reason for being alive and on the planet in this person's hands. And, and so it's no longer in your control. You're right. And and I think that boils down to as well, expectation. You know, I talk a lot with my clients about expectation that you kind of think, well, if I behave like this, then surely that must mean they will recognize that and say this or do that and everything. And then when they don't do that, we live a life of disappointment. We don't sometimes recognize that they're not showing you that because they're not capable of that. We assume because of past experiences and meaning we've attached to that, that they're behaving like that because we're not worthy, we're not good enough. And just as you're saying, we then need to seek that somewhere else, which then can become addictions, emotional eating. We can, you know, become addicted to shopping, porn, gambling, um, food, or we need to fill that. I call it a hole in your soul. We need to fill that hole in your soul by something, because if we don't do that, then there's no reason to live here. There's yeah. Why are we here? Right. It's it, it, the mundane, if you don't have self-esteem, then the things, um, that are truly annoying about living, you know, the stuff we have to do that those things become unbearable. And that's really where, you know, you get, to those rock bottoms where you basically are just taken down to the studs and you get to make a decision about what you're going to do differently. And it's very, very painful in the, uh, in the program and in, you know, in 12 step, we say that expectations are future resentments and, and, and they are, you know, we, they are future when we expect, and I, you know, I do a lot of work around this too. And, and I often, you know, do like a mini inventory of myself. Like, why am I so, what is it? And I got to tell you a lot of the time, I don't even realize I have expectations. That's what's, that's what boggles my mind is that when you feel it in your body, when someone doesn't behave, how you think they would, should behave. Cause I'm being like, good, I'm doing this. Why aren't you behaving? Well, and it's, it's the stuff, you know, it's the stuff and that's, it's like, there's no way that, one wouldn't behave this way. That's the stuff, right? Because there's like expectations, like it's Valentine's Day. Of course you would get me something, a card, right? Like there's that expectation. And then there's the expectation of like, I expect because we're friends that you won't steal from me. I expect that you would treat me the way I would treat you or that you would have basic common human decency. And to me, I could not make sense of that. And I think that's probably, and I want to get into this relationship, like, 
probably what happens with an, with the narcissist in my experience <laughs> is you literally cannot compute. Like it just doesn't compute how it's human. There has to be a mistake. Correct. And this is when we have in narcissistic abuse, something called cognitive dissonance. So we need to find a reason for something. So we have them behaving this way and we're thinking, hey, why? They should be behaving like this. So we have these two conflicting kind of with the same thing and our brain needs to find a reason. So for me, it would be, well, maybe he's tired. Maybe he's this, maybe he's that. I would want to find a reason to stay in the relationship, to carry on, just to stay safe. And that was my version of staying safe, of finding the reason just to stay where I was, because that for me was safe because I didn't die yesterday. So that must be okay being like this, but we need to find a reason for it. But just as you say, you know, you, you can't comprehend that. Surely if I'm being this nice and I'm doing all of this, then he should behave like this and he's behaving like this. But then, well, what could be the reason for that? So it's two conflicting opinions. And again, when I look back, my gut was telling me this all of the time. I just didn't listen. I just didn't listen. What were some of the red flags leading up to getting married? Like the tattoo was one of them. So he'd been married before as well. And it ended very suddenly. He cheated in that marriage as well. But again, the cognitive dissonance, the the reason why was he was young. He was a young man in his early 20s when he got married. And of course, you know, rationally, I could understand that, you know, he he was too young, didn't want to settle down. And um, but that still at the back of my mind, I thought, oh, okay, he still cheated, though. So there were little things like this. Lack of emotion with certain things were red flags to me. Sometimes he was overly affectionate. And then other times with things I'd think, oh, oh, okay. There didn't seem any empathy, which of course I know for a narcissist now is one of the biggest red flags of of zero empathy. So there was subtle things that when I look back, moving very quickly, I've never felt like this before. You know, um, you're amazing. Just really showering me really with all the things I wanted to hear in, in some respects. And of course, I can look back now and think that they're red flags. But at the time, you know, some of the things were little warning signs. I remember even on my wedding day, actually thinking, is this the right thing to do? Because we'd had problems a couple of years before and then a year before. So it hadn't been plain sailing um, at all, but it was still maybe it'll work. I'm sure it will. I'll do my best. I'll make it work. I'll make it all all right. I'll show that I'm good enough, so to speak. So, you know, it was it was very much when I look back, some of these subtle differences and everything. And then during the marriage, you know, I look back at some of his behaviors and extreme behaviors on things. And, and again, in my book, Divorce Became My Superpower. You know, there's one time when he came back from work and he told me he'd killed somebody. <laughs> I know. Wow. And uh, I know. He'd been on a he'd been on a flight. He was 8 hours late coming home from a flight and I'd called um British Airways and they told me no the flight had landed there were no emergencies and bear in mind I'd used to work for them myself. I'd also got a medical background. So um I was getting really worried because I kept trying to call his mobile, no answer. 
And I actually called the local police. They took his registration of his car to see if there'd been any accidents on his journey home because they would take the number plates. No, that was fine. And eventually he answered his phone and he just said, I think I killed somebody. And I was like, what? (laughs) What do you mean you killed somebody? And he said there was a lady who came off the aeroplane. She'd fallen, hit her head. He had to perform CPR on her. And as he was telling me all of these things, and of course, having a medical background, I was saying, well, where are the paramedics at this time? You know, asking what I know, where were the rest of the crew? Because he was kind of saying he was all on his own and, and that isn't what happens. So, and then in the end, he was like, so stop talking to me. You know, I'm in shock. I'm in shock. Uh, brushing it. So it was, my gut was saying, that doesn't sound right. But my husband is lying and saying he's killed someone. Who does that? Who does that? And I remember when he eventually came home, he literally took his shirt off and he said, oh, it's got blood on it and put it in the bin. And he wouldn't talk about it. So as much as I was trying to talk about it, he was dismissive of me. I'm I'm so in shock. I can't talk about this. And I said, well, do you, should you go back to work because you're in shock? And again, I knew the British Airways procedures of, you know, they were very good actually at supporting their staff if they'd been through, you know, um, any events on the aeroplane. We heard nothing from them over the next few days. And I remember saying when he eventually went back to work, because again, I kept thinking, this can't be true because it doesn't make sense. But he was looking me in the eye and telling me this. So what do I do? Keep saying you're a liar or, you know. And I remember when he went back to work, I said, you must tell your line manager that they didn't contact you for this. And I remember calling him and saying, have you spoken to your line manager? He said, yes. And guess what? She survived and she thinks I'm this hero for saving her life and everything. And again, I was thinking, this isn't true. But is it true? But it can't be true. But is it true? Because he's my husband. Why would my husband lie to me and say he's killed somebody? So bear in mind, I'm an intelligent woman. But I was left questioning things. Is it real? Isn't it real? And I just literally lost myself. I was purely focusing in the end on being a mom because I didn't know what was real and what wasn't real because he would tell me these things. And there's lots of other snippets in in my book about other things that he did um, as well. That again, left me wondering what was, what was real, what was real and what wasn't. What do you think you should, when you look back and let's just take that one for a second, what would have been the other response? I think the other response was to listen to my gut um, with all of that. So when, say, I, I was asking those questions, I knew it wasn't true. I knew it wasn't true. But again, knowing how the brain works about trying to keep me safe and, you know, not taking things in maybe that I didn't want to hear or feel because we had a home together, we've got children together. So, When I look back, I wasn't in the space to do anything other than what I did because of the abuse. But when I look back and I think it wasn't really what I should have done in that moment, it's how I should have been going into that relationship. Had I gone into that relationship knowing my worth, well, I probably wouldn't have got married to him anyway, but even if something like that would have happened in the marriage, my reaction would have been very, very different because my starting point 
would have been different. I would have been coming from a place of self-worth, self-esteem, not a place of lack, not a place of not feeling worthy, not good enough in that. And again, the trauma of psychological abuse, you know, I'd already got physiological brain changes happening, you know, in my hippocampus, um, my hypothalamus. I was addicted to being in that relationship. You know, every cell of my body started to get used to feeling on edge. You know, and I talk a lot about this with my clients about the addiction to a narcissist. And research has shown that it's 20 times harder to break an addiction to a narcissist than heroin because we're so entwined with them. And that's why no contact is so difficult with a narcissist. It is, it is so, so hard. So, you know, it was all of the cells of my body, like an addiction. I needed the struggle. It was and what you might think, and people might think, that sounds crazy. You know, surely you don't want to feel like that. But that was my version of normal. That was my version of safe. That was what I knew. And of course, you know, it became a habit to me to feel like that. And then the moment if I started to move away from that, that felt scary to me. That felt dangerous to me. This was what I knew. So I wonder, like, so let's say you had a client who called you and the client called you and told you this story, right? They're married. They have two children. You know, the, they, you know, they have friends at school. They have the whole, the whole setup, right? They own the home. And the husband called your client, said this story. What sh- and they know, and they say, Caroline, I, I know he's lying and I don't know what, to, what should I do right now? What, what would you do? So the first thing I would make sure is that they were safe. You know, I volunteer at my local domestic abuse charity. And one of the big things that we talk about is safety. You know, we've got to make sure that they're safe because if they're going to have a conversation, you know, potentially with their husband when they come home or their wife, because obviously it's a non-gender specific here, um, they need to make sure that they are going to be safe. So the conversation would really be led by them. What do you think you want to do now? Because at the end of the day, it's not my place to tell someone just to leave a relationship. They have to be ready to do that, you know? And as much as I would love to say to lots of people, you need to leave and get out, I can't do that. They have to be ready. Just like if someone had just said that to me, I wouldn't have believed them and I wouldn't have done that. So we're all on our own pathway and we're all on our own journey. But what I would say is if you feel like this, then maybe it's time to think about an exit strategy at some stage. And I would go through a lot of things that they could do without their partner knowing, you know, um, getting photocopies of everything, for instance, you know, bank accounts, passports, knowing where all of these things are so that when they are ready, and that's the key here, when they are ready, because certainly here in the UK, the stats are, it takes seven times of before somebody actually leaves a domestically abusive relationship. So that will mean seven times they report it, not forgetting all the other times that it's happened behind the scenes anyway. Okay. So that person has to be ready. So if someone contacted me in that moment and said, I think he's lying and everything else, it's really listening to them in that moment and helping them with what they feel in that moment to get them back online into the front part of their brain so that they can make some calm and rational decisions as to what they feel is the best thing for them to do. And like now, for instance, with COVID-19 and a lot of people being in lockdown and they are in abusive relationships, 
I'm not going to say to them, you need to leave because it's not necessarily the time. What we need to look at is safety is paramount, but we can still create an exit strategy for when you are ready. And, you know, and I will often get friends message me of that. My friend is in an abusive relationship. What can I do? And I say, you know, just be there, just be there for when they are ready to go, that they know you are there because the isolation sometimes, certainly for me, I I became quite isolated um, in my marriage um, as well. But it's really important in that moment, really, for just to be heard and validated, you know, that if someone contacted me and said that, just to listen to them, just to validate their feelings, just to help them regulate themselves again, for them to make the decisions. I can't make them for them. They have to be empowered enough to be able to do that but they need to be able to do that safely and securely. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's great advice. And, you know, I was thinking back to, I was, in the relationship that I was in, the stakes were not as high as having children and, and home ownership and all that. But I I was very isolated and I was at, young and a teenager. And so, and he was in his late twenties. And so he, he had access to my parents and, you know, whether or not I was going to get sent away and all these different things. And so I remember one day he said that he was going to the grocery store and he didn't come back for two days. And he told me he had been gone for four hours or whatever it was. And he, you know, and we're using drugs. So it's also, there's also that, but he, you know, the, but the convincing, like, no, you have lost your mind, Ashley. Like, I was only gone for four hours. I'm like, no, I was looking for you. I didn't know where you were. And and that repeated, like, you're losing your mind. You need, you know, and and that moment where you you know that it's not true. Like, you know that that's not true. That can't be true. But you also, there's two things going on. Number one, you do, you're not so certain of yourself, right? You're not like, you know, it's not true, but you're also like, am I like, there's a little voice that's good question. Right. And then like, you can't prove it. Right. So you're like, I can't prove that I'm, you know, he says in the, in his, in his arguments that degrade you make some sense to you. And the other thing is, and this was the biggest thing, if it's true, then what, what am I going to do? Like, okay, so I prove it. Like, I can't, I'm not going to leave. Like, I'm not ready to leave. And that was kind of the big thing is like, I knew I wasn't going to leave or ready to leave. So at a certain point you just move on because yeah, you know, it's not true. And he knows it's not true, but you can't prove it. And even if you could, then what are you going to do? You're still there. And, and it's easier to just gloss over it than it is. And this is correct. And this is when we have the physiological changes that start to happen in the brain. So the hippocampus shrinks with the trauma of abuse and the amygdala, the sort of fear center of our brain becomes bigger. So when that hippocampus shrinks, this is why so many people start to get brain fog. They start to have that lack of focus because that memory center is shrinking. And all of these things are happening to protect you because if our brain's number one job is to protect us, to keep us safe, to keep us away from the biggest perceived pain. So 
it shrinks in size, the amygdala increases in size, which then means we become a lot more alert. We're a lot more living in our trauma responses. And actually, a lot of people talk about three trauma responses, fight, flight, and freeze. I'm sure you know your listeners will know that. But there's actually a fourth trauma response within narcissistic abuse, within psychological abuse and abusive relationships. And that's actually the fawn trauma response. So the fawn trauma response is just as we were saying there, it's almost like we become almost submissive in some respects. Or we try and make it right because that's our version of trying to stay safe in a relationship. We'll be really, really nice then or we'll just ignore that then and we'll try and gloss over it and make it all okay because it's our brain thinking, what do you need to do right now to stay safe? What is going to be the the least pain for you right now? And that's how we're going to act. So that might be, and very often, you know, a majority of my clients are in a they they live in functional freeze really, you know, um, and they they were kind of in fawn when they were in the relationship and freeze, and then once they're out of that, as they move through, they can move back into sympathetic and fight and flight. But a lot of the time, they're very much sort of in that dorsal vagal aspect of the trauma response of freeze because that's literally them just getting through each second of every day and it's not them being weak it's just their brain saying this is how you need to do just to get through your relationship just get through um right now maybe it'll change but right now to help you survive we're just going to go into shutdown and that's why a lot of people don't see anyone speak to anybody because they're literally their brain is just focusing on the major organs to survive to stay safe because that's our perception of that because of the physiological changes that have happened. It really, like you said, like I'm a smart person. I'm, you know, I, I was never, I would never have pictured myself being capable of where I could much more easily see myself abusing drugs and alcohol than I could have the person I turned into as simply as a result of the relationship. And you, you definitely outlined that correctly, which is that you basically, you're waiting for the next thing. You also don't know because nothing makes sense. You don't know what's your fault and what isn't. You don't know what's real and what isn't. Uh, you know, I remember he used, we used to go to these festivals and he would leave me, he would, you know, and again, I was on you know, I'm a lamb from my family. So I couldn't really call my parents. That would end up in a whole other thing. So it would leave me places to see what I would do and then come back six hours later, like in a parking lot somewhere, somewhere I didn't know where we were, you know, and create dependence. You know, for us, it was, it was drugs and different things, create dependence and all these things. And if you ask anybody who knows me today, they would say there's no way she would let that happen, right? Like there's just, that's... Yeah. (laughs) But when you need that esteem, that self-esteem, when there's some sort of pull, you know, for me, it was intertwined with drugs and alcohol, which certainly complicates things, but it could be intertwined with, okay, this is the next stage of life. This is, you know, I need to have children. I need to, whatever that thing is. And you really do find yourself in this place where... It's all well and good that you know the quote unquote truth, like this person is full of shit and I know it and I know that. But again, if your life is so intertwined, you have the choice to somehow just go on your gut, right? And blow the whole thing apart or just keep your mouth shut and keep going and hope that it doesn't happen again. 
Correct. And again, with a lot of my clients, I will really help them understand the trauma responses. Every single client I have who has been in, like I say, in a toxic relationship, a narcissistic relationship, have all the signs and symptoms of complex post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, they're they're in that stage. They they spend the majority of them time in sympathetic or that ventral vagal, the bottom of that emotional regulation ladder in fight, flight or freeze, you know, and it's and it's really interesting talking to them, getting them to recognize because a lot of them, and I went through this as well, just as you were saying, you know, people look at me now and think, God, I can't imagine you being in a relationship like that. And it's like, gosh, I almost wish I had a camera because, you know, to show some of my clients and, and, and that to show what I was like, because this was not me then. It really, really wasn't. I can, I was like this different person, but I, What I understand now from all my training and everything is, you know, the brain's number one job is to keep us safe. So how we react in these moments, it's not us being weak. It's our brain's perception of perceived threat and danger, an abusive relationship. So that might be, I know when I was having, say, my panic attacks once I was out of uh, my marriage, that was me being in the sympathetic, the fight or flight. My body was mobilized, ready. I was ready to react. And I talk a lot with my clients about, is there a lion about to eat you? You know, and, and a lot of them, oh, no, there isn't now. But you're still feeling as if you're in the trauma of that relationship. So it's really interesting, really getting people to understand with that awareness of where they are now in the present, because they're still feeling all of those things, the traumas, somatic memory in their body from those past events that haven't finished processing. And that's why many people still years and years later, they haven't truly healed, say, from narcissistic abuse, because they haven't time stamped that memory in the hippocampus into the past. It's like it's still happening right now for them. They still have all of those somatic sensations. And that's not a pleasant place for people to live their life. And this is where we start to get stress-related illnesses. I did a poll in, in my free group on Facebook the other day asking about, you know, what stress-related illnesses do you all have? And it was astounding, the number, you know, fibromyalgia, migraines, IBS, thyroid issues, liver issues, adrenal fatigue, literally. And as I started to talk to them about maybe why they had these, pretty much they thought it was just from being in the relationship, but they didn't get the cortisol and and the effect that trauma has on the body. And you will know this from talking sort of intergenerational traumas and that, you know, there's such now a lot of research now, even about childhood trauma, the the propensity for disease and illness later on, you know, doesn't mean you will because we can change the environment and and everything. But if you don't do that and you're still holding that stored trauma, there is a higher likelihood that you are going to suffer with stress-related illnesses later on in life. And I absolutely know, and I I was talking to my cousin about this today as well, Ashley, my mum suffered with rheumatoid arthritis from a very early age, about 32. And I am absolutely convinced that due to her childhood trauma with her father and um, the dynamics of, um, you know, her mum and and dad and the, the domestic abuse, that that stored trauma 
had something to do with her getting rheumatoid arthritis at 32 years old, that she hadn't, she, it was all stuck in her body and it needed to come out somewhere, her immune system, everything as well. It's interesting. Um, we, we talk about when we talk about the trauma and, the, and all the stuff, right? And we really talk about it from a perspective of in uh, sobriety, from the perspective of feelings and situations, whatever. We kind of, we talk about it like you're driving a station wagon, right? And you just, you're driving and you just, every time something gnarly comes up, you throw that behind you, you throw that behind you, right? Because you have to, because you've got to keep driving and you just keep throwing it behind you. And you know, getting help, getting well, whatever that form that looks like is like slamming on the brakes and all of that baggage coming, slapping you in the back of the head, going onto the dashboard and covering your vision. And you, because it's compounded, because you haven't dealt with it, right? It's coming back all at once. The feelings are so intense, even though those things happened in the past. Because again, it's not time stamped because you didn't time stamp it. You threw it back there and here it comes. And that's why we avoid it. And that is why I always say to people, you can avoid it, but eventually there's no room. So it's coming back. So you can either have a smaller load come back and then, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like my, my email inbox, right? Like I can ignore it till it's 15,000 emails, and, and then, you know, or that, you know, or that, or you can create new habits and changes and, and willingness to feel these things. And, and remember that like, no matter how terrible you feel, it's not permanent. I heard a great analogy of this um, a while ago, actually, around some trauma training that I was having. And um, she was liking it to a swimming pool. So we imagine our brain and our body, we're like a swimming pool. We have a certain capacity of that swimming pool. And through our life, as things are happening, trauma, events, beach balls are coming into that swimming pool. They're all going into that swimming pool. And at some stage, that swimming pool is going to be full and it's going to start to overflow. It's going to start to be overwhelmed. So it's thinking about the starting point for healing is we want to increase the capacity of that swimming pool. So even the beach balls that are already in there, then even if they're still there, we can still be at a regulation level and cope with the beach balls that are still in there and then process them one by one to try and obviously move our way through that. And then also any new beach balls that are starting to come in as we're moving forward, we learn to process and deal with them as we go along. And this was something, again, from being in uh, going through all of that trauma, I re- just as you were saying, I shoved it to the back of my head. I'll deal with that. I, I can't deal with that now. Even when my mum died, it was almost like I didn't grieve for that for a long time. I didn't dare go there. I didn't want to open that up. Yeah, I was too busy trying to survive and earn money for my children. I can't go there. I'm not going there. Didn't mean it wasn't there. It didn't mean that in certain events in, in the present moments for me, I didn't react and have these you know, physical somatic reactions to all of this. But it's really about increasing your capacity because stuff is going to happen in our life. But if we don't increase that capacity, then we're always going to be in that stressful state. And then as new things come, we want to be able to deal with them as we go along um, as well. Because I know certainly for me, it was like any new thing that came in, it was almost like, oh, another thing, you know, goodness me, something else. And it was like the end of the world. Because of course, my brain had been set by that stage, you know, with all these physiological changes, 
that because my amygdala then had increased in size, even dropping the car keys for me was like a major event. And it was sending me into a trauma response of fight, fight or freeze, you know, because I was on this hyper alert all of the time, or I was in hypo arousal as well, just in shutdown and not wanting to move or see anybody. And I always remember thinking that I would have quite happily become an agoraphobic during that time had I not got my children, but I had to take them to school because nobody else was going to do that. But if I didn't have children, I I didn't want to see anyone or speak to anybody. But that was because my brain was saying, Caroline, you need to go into shutdown. And again, it wasn't me being weak. It was going into shutdown for when I felt safer to start moving up and mobilizing again. So again, you know, we talk a lot of about with people who, you know, have been in abusive relationships, addictions, and they have a lot of shame and guilt around all of that because of their reactions to things. And I'm such a believer that when we educate people about their own body and why we react the way that we do, then we can have a bit of compassion and kindness to ourselves and understanding, but then we've got to take responsibility and have intention of how we are going to move forward. However slow that is, you know, it is about gently moving forward, processing any past traumas you know stamping them into the past so we can think of them because a thought is just a thought but the words and pictures we say to ourselves elicit our emotional responses in our body that's what causes the problem for us it's our emotional responses it's what we're telling ourselves all of the time that makes us feel the way it's not it's not events that make us feel a certain way it's the meaning we attach to those events and what we're telling ourselves normally a negative belief i am helpless i'm worthless i'm powerless i'm not enough that's what causes us to have the somatic responses in our body as well so it's just really helping people slowly to recognize um, all of this too, because I, I didn't know when I came out of all of this, you know, I was at a space of how am I going to heal from this? Is this it for the rest of my life now? Is, is this it? And I remember I was at a crossroads one day and I remember it's when I hit 40 and I remember thinking I've got two roads here. One, I can just stay how I am for the rest of my life and feel feeling sorry for myself and, and being angry at everybody. And that could be my life waiting for a knight in shining armor to come and rescue me because I grew up with Cinderella stories, you know, happy ever afters, or I could rescue myself. The biggest gift I could give myself was to rescue myself, to heal my own deep inner wounds. And now we have a phenomenon in positive psychology called post-traumatic growth. So, uh, which I, I have had from following on from the complex PTSD. And I now realize that the growth I've had in my life and where I am now I would never have had that had I not gone through those traumatic experiences. So, of course, I wish my mum was still here, of course. But being in my that narcissistic relationship, I actually have in, incredible gratitude, actually, because he just shone a spotlight on the inner wounds that were already there. He was just really good at shining a light on those for me to recognize, for me to heal, to live the rest of my life, feeling more joy and connection. Whereas had I stayed in that marriage, had I just flitted between relationships even, I would never have healed those deep inner wounds of lack of self-worth, not feeling good enough, lack of self-esteem. So actually, I feel incredible gratitude for that. But again, it took a lot of deep inner work to get to that stage. Absolutely, absolutely. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, it's Ashley, your beloved host. When I'm not hosting The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, I'm running the recruiting department at Lion Rock Recovery. We are 
always looking for amazing licensed mental health counselors, along with various other sales and operations positions that pop up from time to time. The Lion Rock culture is one of collaboration, support, and flexibility. Our employees work from home offices all over the country, utilizing technology to connect to one another. We are always hiring. So if you want to have the best job ever, check out our open positions and apply at www.lionrockrecovery.com backslash about backslash careers. Tell me about parenting. So parenting the children of the narcissist who you're healing from, who leaves you, like, how did that go? How, what, what is that like? So it, it was a challenge because a lot of people think, well, you're out of the marriage now. Surely it should get better. And actually, <laughs> yeah. if you have kids, it actually gets right. worse. Because, of course, if you're coming from that place still of not feeling good enough, they know what your Achilles heel is, and that's being a great mom. So they're going to say all of those things to make you not feel a great mom, which is going to elicit all of these emotional responses in your body. So again, it was a challenge and it took a lot of intention and daily practice of sitting in, feeling the way I did, you know, understanding I'm feeling like this right now. Why am I feeling like this? What am I telling myself right now as to why I am feeling like this? And, you know, when I started to peel back that onion, it was, I feel like I'm not a good mother. And I had to challenge that and get curious about that, that actually I am, I'm a great mom. But I was at the start, a very codependent mom. So I had to heal my inner wounds to then break that cycle for my children. So I never badmouthed my ex in front of my children. I, I did not want to do that at all. I wanted them to make their own decisions. They were very young to start off with. And then as they have got older, and I, I see this a lot with my clients, they get so worried that their children are going to be psychologically abused by their ex-partner. And yes, that can potentially happen. But if you can empower your children to have a healthy sense of self so that they recognize other people's behavior is never a reflection of them. It is merely a projection onto them from their own past experiences. So I was religious in teaching my children this so that they recognize that they don't see their dad that much. They hardly see him at all. They have a nice relationship with him that works for all of them. and um, But my children absolutely know, he's got another family now as well, absolutely know that their dad not seeing them is absolutely no reflection of their worth because they know how worthy they are. They understand their dad loves them to his capacity and that their dad is just projecting onto them it is no reflection of them. And for me, that is the biggest gift. And the reason why I know that is my daughter had an incident at school about six months ago and someone was being quite mean to her at school. And she came out and she was really upset. And I said to her, you know, what do you want to do about that? And she said, I'm really upset, mum, but I know that she has stuff going on at home. So I know her behaving like that isn't about me. She's just taking frustrations out on me that she has going on at home. She was 11 years old when she told oh. me that. And I was like, oh, I was in my late oh. 30s before I knew that. <laughs> and I just thought, wow, you know what? And again, I felt gratitude for what I'd been through because had I not been through that, I'd have probably still been parenting my children 
you know, you can't feel like that. Right. I'm going into the school. I'm going to say something or say, well, you need to say something back. But I didn't. She knew it was not about her. And that's why both of them, I have a son and a daughter. I know, touch wood, neither of them will end up in toxic relationships because they know their sense of worth. They know, just as you were saying, they know their place on this planet. They know simply for breathing, for being who they are, they are good enough. They're amazing for who they are, not because of grades, not because of how they look or anything else, just for being themselves. And I'll often say things like to my son um, and my daughter, but my son normally answers back more. I'll say, I'm, I'm so proud of you. And he, he'll always go, why? I haven't done anything. And I said, just for being you, just for being you. You're amazing. And I love you. And that for me is the gift I can give them from the stuff I have gone through, that you can break that cycle, you know, and it is, it's been a challenge. So for me, when I'm with my clients, it's, we don't focus on the narcissist. We don't focus on what they may say or do or act. What we focus is on what can you do? How can you empower yourself? And in turn, break a cycle and empower your children. So they can still have maybe a relationship with their mother or their father as a narcissist, but they recognize their behavior is no reflection of them. Absolutely not. That They are amazing for who they are. And this is just their projection to their capability of parenting the child. So you've made this career, uh, this comeback of healing and written this book about divorce being your superpower. They obviously were around when your home was repossessed. And so, so when we look at not talking, speaking negatively about our partners, and I think people even in relationships where their ex is not a narcissist, but in this case, how do you or did you think about talking about what was happening with, with, you know, saying divorce is my superpower, like, oh, you divorced my dad. Like they know about that. Right. And then, and then, then this label, right. Oh, dad's a narc. So, so in some ways that, that label is negative. Like, how do you talk about, it's it's a really great, yeah, it's a really great question because I think even if you spoke to my children about their dad being a narcissist, they don't see it in a negative way oh, as such. Oh, interesting. Because it just, does, it just doesn't affect them. They don't feel, because I'm very calm and regulated, I have an amazing relationship with them, they see what their dad is like with messages to them and they saw what their dad was like when we were, particularly my son because he was older, but they see how him and his new wife and family are towards me. I don't need to say anything. They see it. They see it anyway. But what I want to teach them really is that we have choice in our reactions. We get to choose how we react to that. So I could, if I hear anything, I could react and say, oh, you know, and call him or message him or anything else like that. But I choose not to because I know there's no point to do that anyway because he is who he is so for instance when we had the house repossessed and we had to move house again I explained you know that mummy can't afford to stay here anymore I didn't then need to say because daddy isn't doing anything I just focused on what me what I know so I said you know mummy can't afford it it's just my wage I can't afford you know to stay here and I remember the day that it got repossessed I'd got a rental property not far from where we currently live. So they didn't have to move schools or anything. And I remember they went to school in the morning and I'd got two friends who helped me move. Literally, we moved in that day. 
And when I picked them up from school, that both of their bedrooms were organized and the lounge was organized. It was really important for me that the spaces that they came into felt homely. And literally, it wasn't a traumatic experience. Of course, for me, it was, I felt really ashamed that I'd had my home repossessed and everything else. But I focused on I needed to create a a home environment. And again, what I teach my children with that is, do you know what? It doesn't matter that we move from a four-bed detached house to a three-bed semi-detached house because actually it's the people inside that make it a home. It's not about the bricks and mortar. It's about the love and the people inside. And actually, we all have now. We're in a different house now because I've remarried now. But, um, you know, we have really happy memories of that house because it was the three of us. And I remember... I bought a kitchen table and I put it together myself. And I, you know, so they could see mum being independent, building and doing and creating. And they've, they've seen me go on and, you know, they both go to private school now, of which I pay for, solely pay for, you know. So, so they've seen what hard work can do without me. I don't need to say anything about him. I just focus on me and my relationship with, with my children. Do you, have you had any response from him about the book? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, of course, when it came out, I've changed all the names. Yeah, in yeah. There. And um, I think I called him James in there. I think it was. And he didn't say anything for about a month. There was nothing. And then uh, my son came back and said, oh, dad called me Harry today. <laughs> like this. <laughs> and, that, and I was like, oh, okay, then. And, but they, they didn't say anything else. There was nothing was else it. said. And then... That was it. Uh, and then I had an email where he signed off James. <laughs> oh, man. And so, the thing is, I know what my ex is like. And, you know, he won't take me to court. And I put a lot of disclaimers in there. And actually, all the stuff I did put in about him, I have proof for. And some of it was already in the public domain anyway. So, you know, there isn't really anything he could do. And actually, the book wasn't about slating him necessarily anyway. You know, it was really about my feelings around being in a relationship like that. And again, it was a lot of other stuff about my mom and and surviving on my own and and my own journey um, through healing as well. So, you know, even now, 11 years later, I was telling my cousin this today, I had an email from him. So he's blocked on everything. Even now he's blocked on everything. Uh, But I even had an email because I put something online the other day about um, his tattoo. Basically about, I was talking about love bombing and just kind of giving an example. Because I I, I always think if people know that I've been through that, you know, I'm one of you, I've been there, I know what it's like. And I think people can relate to that more uh, as well. And just like, just like yourself. And I put about him getting a tattoo and just saying, you know, for me, I was like, wow, he's got a tattoo, he must really like me and, and everything. But obviously, this is, you know, a red flag, and it's real love bombing. And I had an email from him about two weeks ago saying, stop lying about me on social media. Um, I got a tattoo a year after we met and it was because you needed reassurance. That's why I got it. And I haven't replied to it because there's no need to, because I know why he has to say that. He has to say that because his new wife will be there thinking, what, you got a tattoo only a month? Well, what about me? So he has to say something to appease his new wife. And actually his first wife, I'm actually really good friends with now. You know, we're great friends on Facebook and she's lovely, really nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, she's one of my biggest cheerleaders in, in what I do. And, and actually, probably she probably took longer to get over him and they didn't have children than I did as well. So, you know, even 11 years on, 
they still don't change. You know, a narcissist, there's no research out there whatsoever that a narcissist can recover. There isn't any research. There's none, none at all. So, you know, there isn't any medical research to say that a not because the issue with a narcissist, so narcissistic personality disorder is they have to recognize that there is an issue to even go and get a diagnosis. And of course, No narcissist will say, hey, I wonder if I'm a narcissist. I'm going to go and see someone to get a diagnosis. They don't do that. There are some people out there that are, there's some people on Instagram and stuff that are self-confessed narcissists. And it's actually quite interesting reading some of their, their posts and everything. But from a healing perspective, again, they have real deep inner wounds. They're not born a narcissist. This comes again from childhood. You know, it can be um, sort of the golden child or or a complete lack of love, which is what my ex-husband's was. So, you know, and then they are created like all of this. But again, I feel incredible sadness really for my ex-husband because he's never really going to know what true love is. He's Because there's not that depth there because he's still seeking. So a codependent and a narcissist actually coming from the same place, that hole in the soul, not feeling good enough. But a narcissist will expect someone else to try and make them feel like that. Whereas the codependent will think, I must be like that to show I am good enough. So again, coming from two different perspectives, but actually from a similar starting point. What do you think about people who are, who have narcissistic traits? So, and again, to be diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder in the DSM, so the Diagnostical and Statistical Manual, there are nine traits listed to diagnose someone with MPD, and you have to have six or more. So somebody could be six, somebody could be nine. Everybody has narcissistic traits. We all have some kind of narcissistic traits in us. But just because someone takes, say, a lot of selfies, that doesn't make them a narcissist. I think I think in our society today, the word narcissist is so overused. You know, everybody's ex is a narcissist if you, if it ends badly. And it absolutely isn't the case. And actually, it negates away from people who have been true victims of narcissistic abuse because it makes them feel like they can't say anything because people will just be thinking, well, just get over it. You're out of it now. So it's absolutely fine. And it can happen with a narcissistic parent, work colleagues. I've just had a client who had a narcissistic business partner. So we had to do a lot of working through that. How how do we manage that when we're kind of coming away from all of that? So, you know, they can come at you from any direction, but we all have narcissistic traits. And I think it's recognizing, again, we give too much emphasis to other people. So when somebody comes and messages me, for instance, and says, is my partner a narcissist? And they'll give me this breakdown of a couple of behaviors. And in isolation, it's really difficult to say. I can't message back and go, yes, they're a narcissist. What I do say is, and I normally send them a video I've got on YouTube actually called, um, have I got narcissistic abuse syndrome? So I will send them that because it's about them. And it's about what do you feel in that relationship? You know, do you feel like your gut is saying, hmm, that's not right? Do you feel like you're losing yourself? Do you feel like you're questioning yourself? Are you becoming a shadow of yourself? So lots of these things, because we know that for fact. You know, I I had a client the other week who came to see me and she'd got about four sides of A4 paper written with sentences that he had said to her. Now, in isolation, you could make excuses for all of them. He was tired. He'd been at work. Put together, we start to paint a picture of somebody. But if you start to say to somebody, oh, I think I think my husband or my wife is a narcissist. They said this to me. And someone might go, 
well, maybe they're, maybe they're tired. Then you start questioning yourself. So you don't bother saying anything to anybody else then. So, you know, for me, a lot of this is about education. It starts with you. How do you feel in that relationship? You know, do you feel you're in a healthy relationship? But a lot of people don't know what a healthy relationship is because our healthy relationships are modeled from when we were a child. And if our parents, again, on average, they're all doing the best that they can. But if that isn't a healthy relationship and then we have our beliefs formed in childhood that become the blueprint of who we are, then we may not be in a healthy relationship then ourselves. So just as you were saying, it's breaking that cycle. But it comes with awareness. You know, the biggest thing I talk to people about is having that awareness and that starting point of where you are and the intention that you want to heal. And one of the biggest things is that you are deserving because so many people think they're not deserving to heal. And, you know, of course you are. You know, everybody deserves to live a life filled with joy and love and connection, you know. But we have to work at that because our brain's number one job is just to keep us safe. So we've got to be intentional about everything else. And that can sometimes bring us a lot of pain and discomfort because we're processing past trauma. Right, right. So can you tell the audience a little bit about narcissists for people who aren't familiar with the DSM like we are? Can you talk a little bit about what the traits are, what the tipping points are? So there's nine different traits. So there are things like there can be a sense of grandiosity. Um, there's a whole host. The one thing I always say to people, though, for me, above anything else, because we can make it more complicated as such, it's empathy. Does your partner have empathy? And uh, The example I use is if you were sat on the floor and you told your partner that you were really ill, how would they react to you? And then how would they react to you if they had an audience of your family or their family there? And if there is a difference, and and people will know this if they have been in a narcissistic relationship. You know, I know my ex-husband was very different around other people. I remember sometimes having my friends around and he'd suddenly start hoovering. So they'd all be going, oh, he's such a good husband. He's so nice and everything. Yet when they were gone, that was it. So for me, empathy Um, You know, we can go through all the different traits in the DSM. But for me, even the DSM with that, there's different types of narcissists. You know, I, I tend to talk a lot about the overt narcissist. That's kind of the traditional one we would probably think of. You know, that person who walks into the room and demands attention, you know, that they are like, look at me, you know, I I deserve to be here, you know, and the, these sort of delusions of grandiosity. The most dangerous type of narcissist is the covert narcissist because they will act like a victim. Poor me. Feel sorry for me. And they will say all of these things. Oh, poor me. I'm the victim in all of this. And that can make it very challenging then if you are the partner or ex-partner of one of those. My ex-husband is a covert narcissist. If you met him, you'd think, what a charming man. He's so nice. He's lovely. Um, you know, and that makes it even more frustrating, obviously, because if you're then saying, well, no, he's like this and he's like this and people will think, well, hold on, he seems really, really nice because, of course, that's the demeanor that they have as well. So really, it's looking um, from the perspective of how do you feel being in that relationship? Are you questioning yourself all of the time? Are you going crazy? Are you losing yourself? Do you feel like you are being isolated? You know, have you got control over the money? Empathy is the key for a narcissist. They have zero, zero empathy. They can fake it to start with to get their own narcissistic supply. 
But the big thing is that lack of empathy. They don't have any empathy. It's all about getting that supply. What? How does that differ from sociopath if they don't have empathy? So a sociopath won't necessarily have any feelings around all of that, whereas the narcissist will still very much be able to cry and show emotion and look like they are showing emotion and they are aware of all of that as Got well. It. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's an incredible story. And I I mean, I was just, when you were talking about the, um, when you were talking about the, the uh, sitting on the floor, I was thinking of your miscarriages and, and what that must have been like. And yeah, it, it, it was, it was almost like when I, w- I remember telling him, I remember on a couple of them almost crying for the loss of my baby, but the loss of where's the reaction? Where's the, where's the empathy there? And even on one of my miscarriages, I had to go and have a DNC. And my mum came with me, not my husband, my mum came with me. And, you know, it was like never discussed. It was just like, it was just like another event in the day, you know, oh, you're back home now, almost like I could have been shopping or something, you know? And so there's that deep, Again, is it me? Have I done something wrong? Am I not good enough? Is he being like this because of me? So I had to really, again, with the healing, really recognize that it wasn't because of me. He was being that to me. Right. Very, very different. Right, right. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing now and your rapid transformational work yeah, so so again, that's been a journey of um, I became an accredited divorce and breakup coach. And to be honest, I was really shying away from trauma, narcissistic abuse, um, because again, it's an overused word. And I thought, gosh, do I really want to go down that route? But the universe was telling me something and... Um, and I, and I obviously went down that route. And, and again, through my own training and academia. So I'm in the final part of a master's in positive psychology and coaching psychology. So a lot of my work is using positive psychology interventions um, as well, which is the study of what makes people happy. So, you know, uh, and the post-traumatic growth aspect of healing from trauma. And then I use EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which has been incredibly powerful for my clients with helping with that stored trauma because again they don't end up where they are for no reason there are lots of reasons for that so emdr has been great and i do it all online as well so um, i have a great tool that i use or i use um, cross tapping um, as well so really helping process any stuck trauma that people have and then rapid transformational therapy is is a combination of hypnotherapy, psychotherapy, CBT, and NLP. And that actually gets to the root cause. So this is all about your subconscious beliefs then. So if you have a subconscious belief of I am not worthy, where's that come from? So in an RTT session, which is about two and a half hours long, we go right to the root cause of all of that. We do some inner child healing, some reparenting. We go on this journey and then you get your own transformational recording, which is about 15, 20 minutes to listen to every single day because the brain works on repetition. So we then, so 60% of the success of RTT is this session itself about what comes up and how we gravitate all around all of the scenes that come up. And then 40% of the success is listening to it every single day then as well. So that you find yourself, you know, where you would normally react one way, 
because you've been listening to the recording, you start to react the other. So we're kind of really what I want to do is reset people's starting point. So we're getting any rid of any trauma that has been stored from any past experiences. And again, I've worked with people where there's been child abuse, rape, kidnap, um, addictions, all kinds of things in the past. So we're really working on clearing that. And then we want to upgrade that subconscious belief. Because if we don't work on both, what I, what I found was if I was working just on a subconscious belief, great, they feel worthy. But if they've still got that stored trauma and they have a trigger, they're still going to feel like it. And then if we didn't work on clearing the trauma, if we, sorry, if we then didn't work on the belief and the clearing of the trauma, then we can clear the trauma. But if they still got a belief of I am not worthy, they're still going to stop themselves doing stuff. They're going to procrastinate. They're not going to get to the next level in their life or their business or their job or anything like that. So for me, combining them both together along with positive psychology and edu- education. So I teach my clients the polyvagal theory, which is which is all about our vagus nerve. And when they understand all of this, I'm such a believer that the starting point, they get why their body has behaved the way it has for all of these years, why they ended up in that relationship, why they were addicted to this, why they, ha- you know, eat so much, you know, all of these different things coming together. They have an understanding that actually it's only their brain and their body trying to protect them. But it's coming from a place of the protection based on past experiences, all the files that are there. That's why we need to react like that. But it's getting curious and questioning all of that and thinking, well, okay, I get why you reacted like that. But do you need to react like that now? Do you need to react getting angry now or running away or going into freeze? Do you need to react or are you safe now? So we're increasing the capacity so they can cope better and then teaching them, you know, everybody that finishes working with me, you know, they've got a toolkit really for the rest of their lives so that as their beach balls still start to come in, they can process them uh, as they go along as well. But along with, particularly because I work with a lot of trauma, but those then with narcissistic abuse, practically of how to go no contact, how to parallel parent, because you can't co-parent with a narcissist. How do you parallel parent? So practical things then as well about how do you manage a a narcissist in your life and stay sane? (laughs) Right, right. Yes, yes. (laughs) That you are absolutely a delight and amazing. Where can people go to find more information, read your book? Where, Where do they, where do they find you? So my book is on Amazon. Um, Divorce became my superpower, and um, so that's on, you can get that on Amazon. Facebook is always a good place to catch me. So I've got my business page, Caroline Strawson. I have a free group on Facebook, Divorce and Breakup Support After Narcissistic Abuse. Um, I have a membership called the Self Healers Circle where I do lessons and lives and teachings and meditations and, and that in that group. I've got my YouTube channel where they can go and watch lots of um, things just to, again, dip their toe in, you know, maybe um, have I been in a narcissistic relationship and then Instagram. So, and then my website, which is carolinestrawson.com. So, you know, lots of places that people can find me, drop me a message. And again, you know, I always try and help anybody that messages me. You know, I get people might not be able to work one-to-one with me, but I've tried to, again, even structure my business that I have free stuff. I have 
you know, minimal payment stuff. I have my one-to-one work because for me, it's really important to, I've been there. I know what it's like to have complex PTSD be at rock bottom. So even if I can do a tiny little thing for somebody then, and it make, and it helps someone on their journey, then for me, it's worth That's it. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And it's, it's just a delight. You're a, you're a wealth of knowledge. And um, I love how much you've put into your healing. It's just a beautiful thing when people take the situation they find themselves in. And I know, I know how the, what that feels like to say like, okay, I can either die here. This is, this is, this is it, or I can make a different decision. And making that different decision is the scariest thing. Dying is, is, you know, what's, that's the known, right? It's the other thing that's terrifying. And you made that decision. Amazing. Amazing. Truly amazing. Caroline, thank you so much. And we'll put all the information in our show notes and can't wait to see all the amazing things that you continue to do for people. Thank you. Really appreciate it. It's been lovely. Lovely to meet you you as well. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.